We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. It's great to see you all. All right, so it's great to have Hugh with us today. Um, Hugh is in, in high demand across the, not only across the country, but God is using him as he's done for many, many years. And uh, um, both in the books now and the teaching series uh, and in the ministry. But, you know, most of all, I want to say Hugh is our friend. A friend that has supported us and helped us. The person that we would draw on if we needed some additional input and resolve. And he's been steadfast in that. I'm thinking 30 years? Yeah. So let's just welcome Hugh. Hugh, it's great to have you with us. Okay, yes, this is on. That's great. No, I'm quite happy with this. It's all right, yeah. I never know what they're going to give me, so... It's the ones when they put the headset on you, and it's always with someone who's had a bigger head, you know, and it falls off. So I did find a Baptist minister who had the same size as head of me, and I was really grateful to use his, but it doesn't often happen. Yeah, it's great to be with you. I, I, I love Lifeline Church. I think you're a great church, and I, I've always felt part of the family here for over the last 30 years and seen some of you grow up. <laughs> but it was just great this morning. Great to have Nick leading the service and James leading worship. It, it's, it just feels like home, this place. So it's just great to be with you. John mentioned some books. I have got some outside. I do have a card machine so we can take payments. My latest book uh, is called Is Kindness Killing the Church, which is a really provocative title. The first line in the book says, no, it isn't, but at least it gets people to buy the book, you see. So, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, after eight years of sort of sitting on top of the pile of churches together in England with the archbishops, I thought I needed to sort of reflect on that time and say something to the churches. And I noticed that really a lot of church leaders from different denominations were coming up and saying, we do really want to learn from one another. And I thought that would be such a great idea. But I noticed that actually what they want to do is to learn about one another. Never actually learning from one another. There's a real difference. Because if you learn from someone, you have to put what they're saying into action you learn about them it's just curiosity and I thought that kind of curiosity that politeness actually it's killing the church well it's at least holding us up do you know what I mean and uh, I want to talk a little bit today about you know what the church should be but uh, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was to encourage people to to pray and, and to see difference come so I've, I've only got about 16 copies here but you can easily get it on Amazon and you can get it on Eden as well. But uh, yeah, the first come for the first 16 copies, that's fine. And there are a few other books as well. And I was just going to mention the Bible Academy course because quite a few of you uh, did the um, School of Biblical Studies for Leaders when I was running that. And then when um, lockdown came along, we uh, suddenly all had to go online. Um, we did two things. One is that we, we carried on the original pattern with me doing an interactive session one Friday a month online. But we also decided that we'd make the course available for people who couldn't do the Fridays, uh, who just wanted to go through the material. 
Doing it with me is much better, and I really enjoy meeting people, and we do a whole lot of stuff that you can't just do on the online stuff. But there are some handbills outside about that, and if you wanted to link up, we can always bring you into the course. It sort of rolls on. We do a big recruitment for September, and if you want to be part of that, then pick up a leaflet today or, or just talk to me out there. Well, where is the church at? <laughs> Globally, in Britain, and what should we be expecting at this time? And in some ways, I look across the church scene, and I am disappointed. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not without hope. And when I come to a church like Lifeline, and I, I look back over the 30 years I've been involved with you, it increases my hope. <laughs> because churches like this can make a real difference. And if I could link everyone up with you and say, learn from them, I would do. Um, but I've got to overcome that caution that people have, where they, they don't actually pick up from one another yet. But I believe that can change. And I suppose the reason I think it is so important is because I've been really impacted recently by a Bible passage, which we all know really well. In fact, I remember speaking on this on, on some of the leaders' events that we've had up at King's Park. But at the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus says this in the, these words. It's in, in chapter 5, and it's verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Lots of times I've spoken on the light. A lot of times I've spoken on the city. But today I want to talk about the salt. But let me just say this about the light, because I think we've misunderstood something. When God says that we're the light of the world, we're not meant to be a searchlight, <laughs> sort of shining around and seeing what we can pick up and complain about. But that's very often how the church is seen. That actually, as someone said, everyone knows what the church is against, but hardly anybody knows what the church is for. <laughs> and that's something we need to alter. When it talks here about being a light, it's talking about giving light to the whole house. So in other words, it's creating an environment where everyone can see what's going on and things can begin to happen. It's not about having a searchlight that today we're targeting this and then another day we'll target that. It's actually about being an influence that brings transformation. And I so want the church to be that. And I do commend you because I, I really feel that in this community, that's something that you've sought to be over many years. But I want to encourage you to think about salt today. And I find these verses really challenging. Just let me read that again. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And when I read that, I have three questions. First of all, where did the saltiness come from? Secondly, why is saltiness so important? And then why can't salt be resalted? And, and that last one is the one I'm going to grapple with in a moment because it's the one that disturbs me most. But I'm a little bit disturbed with the first question as well. Where does the salt come from? Because this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he doesn't say to these people, you will be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
These people weren't born again. Jesus hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't reconciled man to God. These people hadn't been empowered with the Holy Spirit. All the things that we would like to say are what makes us salty, if you like, and can bring transformation in the world. But these were just ordinary people. Actually, when this passage begins, it says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Some people make a distinction between them and the crowd. Was this an intimate communication with his disciples that everyone else was just eavesdropping upon? Or was Jesus addressing the crowd? And I suppose for some people that mm, could be a neat little point about trying to sort out the saltiness, that he was actually talking to his close disciples. But I think actually he was addressing the crowd. He was looking at all of those people and said, there is something about you that makes it possible for me to say, you are the salt of the earth. And of course, that's suggesting there's something distinctive. What was distinctive about this group of people right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Well, we like to think that everyone came out after Jesus, but not everyone did. You know, we know that there were thousands, but there were thousands who never arrived. <laughs> and when Jesus looked at the 5,000 and fed them, he was actually saying, you know, you are distinctive. You're not the whole of the nation. Even though it was declared to be a year of jubilee and Jesus was moving around and, and ministering in every situation, there were those who were prepared to come and sit at his feet and to learn. And that was the crowd. There was something distinctive, even about this crowd, before they knew the outpouring of the Spirit, before they knew what it was to be reconciled to God through the cross, before they knew their sins forgiven, there was something distinctive. There was a desire in their heart to come out and to listen to Jesus. And I think that really was the starting point when he was able to say to them, you are the salt of the earth. You don't realize it yet. I'm actually going to transform you. I'm going to change you. But, but you have a role. You people that have come and are prepared to listen to me, you're going to be used. You're going to be used to actually change society. You're going to be used to resalt that which has become so bland and so boring that it needs transforming. And so he says, that's you. You, that crowd. That, those who turned up today not knowing what you were coming to. Just thinking that you were ordinary people, curious. I'm actually saying... I'm going to use you people. I'm going to give you a role. You're going to go back out there and you're going to change society. And what is it about these people? Their willingness to come and sit at Jesus' feet? But you know, these were just ordinary people. And I think that was part of it. The crowds weren't full of the top people in the land. These were just the ordinary folk. And one of the things about the ministry of Jesus, it says that the ordinary people heard him gladly. And it was because he put a value on them. These people were used to being dismissed. They didn't have a spirituality that was recognized. They didn't pray on the street corners to be seen like the, the uh, Pharisees with their prayer shawls and the tassels and the phylacteries and everything else. I mean, I flew out to Israel quite recently and, and we were on a flight where actually there were a lot of Orthodox Jews on the flight. And the flight was quite marked by the fact that people were strapping on and taking off phylacteries and everything else. And it was quite an experience actually to sit and talk to some of these people on the flight. But just imagine what it was like. 
to feel that back in those days there were sort of second-class and first-class citizens. And it was very much the second-class citizens that turned up to hear Jesus. And they were there listening to him. And Jesus starts turning things upside down by saying, actually, you are the ones that are going to make the difference. And it was something about their humility, something about their, their willingness just to be ordinary that made them extraordinary. You see, part of the problem with society is that it's become very sort of hierarchical, hasn't it? And it's the people at the bottom of the pile that very often don't get recognized. And when we know that the apostles were accused of turning the world upside down, we actually know what they were doing. They were putting it the right way up. <laughs> when Jesus said the first should be last and the last should be first, he was only putting things the right way up. He was acknowledging there's something about a subversive movement that goes through society that can bring change. We all know how salt is used. We know it's not a block of salt that lands on your plate because that would spoil everything. It's something which sprinkles through the whole. And so this is why Jesus is saying, I'm willing to say, even to those people right at the beginning of his ministry. Now, of course, he had it on his heart to work with these people. This is relational stuff, isn't it? When Jesus says, you know, in a sense, you've come, I appreciate this, you are going to be transformative people, he's bringing them into a relationship with him, which will make them increasingly effective. I don't know how salty they would have been on day one if they'd just gone back from the Sermon on the Mount and said, we're going to change society. But as they continue to come and come and sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from him, they began to change. And many of these people, I don't know whether you realize it, would have been people that were among the 3,000 that said yes on the day of Pentecost and were baptized and knew what it was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you might have thought, well, that would have been a good moment to say, now you really are the salt of the earth. But I just want you to realize there's something about the calling of Jesus that he can actually look and see. When he looks, he says, I have need of you. <laughs> I just have need of you, ordinary people, because you are the salt of the earth. And society's taken this up, hasn't it? It uses that expression, oh, that guy, he's the real salt of the earth type. You know the kind of thing? But actually, when Jesus used it, it meant so much more than that, didn't it? So that's where I begin. I begin with that question. Where did the saltiness come from? It came from a spirit of humility. It came from a willingness to sit at Jesus' feet. It came from a willingness to be building a relationship. And it came from a willingness to lay aside all arrogance. But the second thing intrigues me too. Why is saltiness important? Well, in some ways, it's important because we're up against it. <laughs> we live in a world where, you know, basically what is preferred is that which is, which is not particularly challenging, which is, which is sweet and goes with the flow. We don't always like the sort of salty things. And in that, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we have to battle with too. I don't know whether you realize this, but when, when Jesus confronted Peter... After Peter had said, Caesarea Philippi, his great moment, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus starts saying, yes, and I've come to die for you, and I've come to rise again. And he says, no, not so, Lord. I'm not going to let that happen. This is Peter. And Jesus takes him aside, and he says to him, Peter, 
you don't savor or you don't like the taste of the things that I'm saying. You savor the things of the world. You see, there's a need for a change, isn't there, in people's taste buds. <laughs> Even with Peter, you know, he'd got certain things he liked and certain things he didn't like. But sometimes God comes along and says, I'm going to change the flavor of something. And I think we're at a time like that in society right now. I think what society wants is compliments and flattery. And, and above all, what it wants to do is to turn the church into something sweet. Have you noticed that? The world likes the church when we're sweet. <laughs> when we're saying nice things and we, we're, we're just, just they, they want us just to be there, to be sweet. <laughs> and yet the Lord is saying, I don't want you to be sweet. I want you to be salt. <laughs> I want you to be what people don't expect and to be there to make a difference. I know sometimes this is hard. And I know sometimes the church really struggles with this concept because we sometimes go in guns blazing and get it all wrong. We're back with the searchlight mentality. We think if we're doing salt, we're going to do salt really strong, you know. And of course, immediately people spit it out <laughs> and say, come on, church, stop doing the salty bit, do the sugary bit. We like that better. But we've got to be the salt. Because without it, society will just continue to degenerate and be corrupted. And you know, I, I just feel so much that, that we, we are the people that have the... One of the reasons I want churches to engage with each other is because iron sharpens iron. You know, salt brings a saltiness. When you're, when you're engaging like that, you lose the blandness. And so we know that there's an importance about actually bringing the challenge, making the difference. But I told you the one that really caught me most out of these three questions was the last one. Jesus is so blunt, he said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That, that really goes against everything that I stand for. I spend so much time trying to tell people, look, God will restore you. God will restore you. doesn't matter how far you've fallen. God will restore you. And yet Jesus is being really blunt here and saying, if you lose your saltiness, it's not going to be restored. And you'll just be fit for nothing, just to be trampled underfoot. And I find that knocks me back. It's not what I want to hear. I spend most of my pastoral ministry saying to people, you can be restored. God can do it. It doesn't matter where you've been. He can come you back. But I want you to realize that here, Jesus isn't actually talking to the individual at this point. He's saying you corporately. You are the salt. You know, when Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, that same place where Peter had said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That wasn't the first moment that Jesus had had that thought. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, I've got a good idea. Um, let's do a church. <laughs> let's, let's gather a group of people that can, um, yeah, yeah, withstand the gates of Hades. Let's do that group of people that can withstand every enemy's strategy because that's where the enemy hatches up his plans in the gates. That was the way it happened in ancient days. 
It wasn't an idea that just came into the head of Jesus at that moment. It was actually there before the foundation of the world. You know when there was an angelic rebellion? Sometimes people ask me these difficult theological questions. Why didn't God put down the angelic rebellion before he did the creation? Saves a lot of bother, wouldn't it? You know, there wouldn't have been a tempter in the Garden of Eden. It would have just been plain sailing. And God could have just gone like that to all of them and said, that bunch of angels you're done for, we just go with the rest. But he didn't. Why? It's a huge question, isn't it? It's like, whoa, I don't want to answer that one on a Sunday morning. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why. Because he wants us to be part of the solution. I know that might sound a little bit of a shock, but God had already got this plan that he was going to have a creation that went beyond the angelic creation. And that creation is the creation that we are the crown of, the peak of what he had in mind. And do you think he was going to sideline those plans whilst he wiped out the angelic rebellion? No, he was going to go ahead with those plans. He was going to make provision. He was going to make sure that even if the, the tempter drew us away from God's original intention of being filled with life from day one, not just the life that God breathed into Adam, but the life that Adam would have had if he'd eaten of the tree of life and found his eyes were being opened more widely than they even were by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, discovering that he'd got an even closer relationship with God, actually entering into the fullness of life that we know right now. That was God's heart. But God thought, even if that doesn't happen, I'm going to make a way back for this creation. There's no way back for the rebellious angels, but there's a way back for rebellious humanity. That is the grace of God. And why need there be a way back for rebellious humanity? Because we're part of God's solution. It's almost as if God says, well, come on, let the devil do his worst to this group of people, because this group of people will do far more to him than he will do to them. If you think the accuser of the brethren was cast down to give us a hard time, let me just put you straight. He was cast down for us to give him a hard time. The Bible tells us that we will bruise him under our foot shortly. And you know, when in Revelation 12 it talks about us overcoming the accuser of the brethren, it sounds like spiritual warfare, but actually it's quite simple. You do this through the blood of the Lamb. In other words, every time the devil comes up and accuses you of being a wreck, you can say, but the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. By the word of your testimony, the fact that you're holding fast to God in the face of every opposition, that's overcoming the enemy. That really hurts him, you know. Ever since God put us on the earth, his number one assignment has been, let's wipe this bunch out, especially the church. He could see what God had on his mind to raise up a bunch of redeemed people. And he was determined that it should wipe out. When you read Revelation 12, there's an amazing moment where he's described as a dragon that vomits things out of his mouth in order to try and damage the people of God. And what does it say? It says the earth helped out by swallowing it all up. I think that's where we're living today. All the junk that the devil throws out is basically designed to paralyze and finish off the church. The tide of pornography the lies and all the rest of it. We're all meant to fall for it. But while the world is sucking it up and saying, oh, this is great, let's have more of this, we need to be the people that say, no, <laughs> we don't go that way. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto death. 
This is our calling. This is what the church has been raised up to do. In the end, we have a huge part to play in God's redemptive plan. Way beyond just saying, oh, I'm glad I'm saved. I'm really glad I'm saved. I'm really glad that I know what it is to eat of the tree of life and to have that close relationship that Adam turned down. But I know that's only part of the story. I know my Salvation Army ancestors were really keen to come out with saved to serve. That too is only part of the story. We're actually saved to be a transformative community that can complete God's redemptive plan, which includes putting down the angelic rebellion. You know, the Bible doesn't finish when the devil goes into the pit of fire. There are still some great chapters that come after that. (laughs) And those great chapters are chapters of restoration, where you see the church, a glorious church, amazing picture of the church, And you suddenly realize that this was God's heart, that that this group of people that he was raising up to be part of the redemptive solution is actually the group of people he wants to spend all eternity with. And what a picture of the church we end up with. I want to grasp that picture of the church. I want to say, that's what I want to be living now. That's what I want to be working on building. That's why I'm interested in getting churches to come together. Because in the end, what I want to see is that ultimate glory of that church. You know, when that church comes, it's going to be extraordinary because it's, it's, it's coming a city from heaven, which means that you can look up and see things that you wouldn't normally see. You can actually see the foundations of the city. And when you see the foundations of the city, you see the walls of the city. The foundations of those walls have got the names of the apostles on, and those names are inscribed on precious stones. You wouldn't see that if it wasn't coming down from heaven. You look up and you think, my goodness, you know? When did the apostles lay the foundations for those walls? Solomon's porch, I guess. When they were teaching daily. It started building up those walls and building up those walls. When we preach the word of God today, we're building up those walls. When we look back through 2,000 years of history, everyone who's preached God's word faithfully has been building up the walls. And it's because the walls are strong that the gates can always be open. I mean, one of the weird things that I had to do during uh, the COVID crisis was to actually play a part in deciding how the churches were going to respond. And some churches were saying this, and some were saying that. And some were being very desperate and saying, we demand that our doors shall be open and stay open. And once or twice I was tempted to say, but actually your doors have never really been open, have they? Only for the select few that you wanted to let in. If we're really going to go for a church that's got open doors, we need strong walls. The reason that the church was so open in the first century, there was that amazing statement in Acts which said about the church, it said this, that no one dared join them, but God added daily. That almost sounds like an impossibility, isn't it? That there was something about the church that when people looked at it and thought, oh, do you know... That's beyond us. These people are are living a level of love and light, and yet they want to welcome us in. And somehow God added people. 
so that when they came in, they were transformed. When we look at that city, yes, it's got high walls, it's got open gates, but what else has it got? It's got a river of life flowing through it. My goodness, <laughs> if I could challenge the church about not having open doors, I could challenge a few places about what happened to the river of life. <laughs> now, I've just been to Jerusalem, and I've always known Jerusalem had a water problem. I've now discovered that the brook Kidron has pretty much dried up and actually starts outside the city now. So Jerusalem is one of the driest cities on earth. <laughs> but when David wrote his Psalms and he said, there is a river that makes glad the city of God, he wasn't thinking about the physical Jerusalem. He was thinking about the Jerusalem that is to come. He was thinking about the church that he, he couldn't actually see, but he was trying to construct something on earth physically that would resemble it, but he couldn't do the water. <laughs> but actually, the church has that river of life flowing through it. And it actually says that the, the tree of life is accessible, and the leaves of the tree provide healing for the nations. You know, right now, this should be what we're going for, folks, shouldn't it? We should be saying, this is what we're going for, church. Uh, and not just our little one, but, you know, there's something about the way God does things. That what is true of the macro can also be true of the micro. If you ever want to find out how a hologram works, don't actually ask me, but go and look online. It's quite complicated. But there's a weird thing about a hologram. If you have a hologram on a piece of glass and you smash that glass into a thousand pieces, every single piece has the whole picture on it. If you want to work that out, look online. I'm not going to try and explain it, certainly not on a Sunday morning. But the incredible thing about that is it's exactly what the church is like. The big picture needs to be evident in every single little fragment. Every one of us needs strong walls, open doors, a river of life flowing through us, tree of life available. We all need transparency as well because that city is so bright and yet it's transparent. We need to be able to live in that light. And this excites me. But I want to tell you that when Jesus is saying this, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, it cannot be resalted. It's only fit for treading underfoot. What he's actually saying is there is no plan B. There is no plan B. <laughs> this is it. God is totally committed to this agenda of raising up a church filled with people who overcome the accuser of the brethren because we know what it is to have the blood of the Lamb cleansing us, have the word of the testimony in our lives and not loving our lives unto death. Wow, what a picture, isn't it? Can you see when they were gathered on that hillside and Jesus said to them, you are the salt of the earth. He was giving them an assignment. You had to go back out there and make a difference, folks. But he was also committing them to relating to him until they were empowered and transformed and could actually really be that salt to bring that difference. You know, I think we're living in incredibly exciting times. I know some people get really disheartened and think, oh, it's so terrible. But yeah, okay, fine. But, but God wins in the end. I don't know whether you've read the end of the book. <laughs> I did actually, I often tell this story, but I did give a Bible once to a prisoner. And I followed up and I said, what did you read first? He said, you've never been in prison, have you? 
So I said, no, not really, other than to take services on a Sunday morning. Um, he said, if you've been in prison, you'd know that all the books in the library, all the ones where you want to read because you want to know who did it, they've all had the last two pages ripped out. <laughs> so I thought, is that so? He said, yeah, yeah, if you get a book that's still got the last two pages in, you read those and then make sure well, no one else is going to know how this ends. So I said, so, so what did you read first? He said, well, I read the last two pages. What else do you think? <laughs> so I said, I think you're the first person I know who started reading the Bible by reading the last two chapters of Revelation. But I think more of us should read those last two chapters. More of us should know how it ends. Because those last two chapters were written for the benefit of a group of churches that were under tremendous pressure. And it was like God was saying to them, I want you to know how this turns out, folks. You win. I want you to be overcomers now. But I want you to know that no matter what comes, in the end, you win. And I want you to go away from this this morning. It's, it's, it's not been my most coherent message because I get a bit passionate when I talk like this. But, but I want you to go away from this thinking, you know, we are the salt of the earth. And God has no plan B. <laughs> if the church doesn't make it, then, then what? We're just fit for nothing. If we've lost our saltiness, we're not going to make it. No matter how much the world says, be sweeter, be sweeter, be sweeter. We've got to be what Jesus wants us to be. And I, I want to commend you. Because over the 30 years I, I've, I've journeyed with you as a church, I've seen this determination just to be what God wants us to be. And I, I sense it. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you. But I've just got it on my heart to pray for John for a moment. I just want to tell you a little story before I pray for John. John has carried this church and carried the burden of it right from the beginning. You know, and when you do that over a period of time, quite apart from what physical conditions you might have to battle with along the way. There are moments when you get weary in well-doing. <laughs> and there are moments when we just know that God wants to bring a refreshing. And I want to tell you this little story. I, I, I got landed with this responsibility back in the 90s of being the London coordinator for the Evangelical Alliance. And it was a time when there was just so much happening. There were the revival meetings that were going on in Marsham Street, uh, Alpha was just getting off the ground. And I was buzzing around here, there, and everywhere trying to facilitate all these different bits and to make it happen. And there was a lot of, um, believe it or not, in the midst of that, there was some competitiveness and tensions. And, oh, boy, it was wearying. And, and I knew I was struggling, but I wasn't trying to let anybody else knew I was struggling. And I felt at times that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. You know that kind of feeling? Oh, why did I say yes to this? Oh, it was sufficient for these things. And then something really weird happened. I went to a meeting, prayer meeting, with a bunch of friends in a flat in Westminster. And one of them had just come back from Argentina. And I wasn't saying about how I felt or anything like that. I thought I got it hidden brilliantly. You know, you can go and keep smiling. And everyone says, oh, well done, well done, well done. And this friend that was there at that meeting said, I've just come back from Argentina. And I brought this bottle of oil. 
thought, bottle of oil was good too. So I went into this town. And the Christian leaders in the town had been meeting together. They'd formed a strong relationship with each other. And they had it on their hearts that there was someone in London who'd been given a responsibility that was too big for them to carry. And they didn't know what to do about it. I mean, they were in Argentina. They didn't even know anyone in London. So what they decided to do was to get a bottle of oil. Whatever got that in their minds, I'm not sure. Anyway, they got this bottle of oil. And every time they met, evidently they prayed over the bottle of oil. <laughs> Lord, we want this oil to be a real blessing. And although we don't know who it's for, we just pray that somehow one day someone will come from London <laughs> and pick up the bottle. And sure enough, this person picked up the bottle. And I was sitting in the meeting, and I was thinking, that's great, that's really good. I wonder who it's for. <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder who it's for. I can't possibly imagine. I was sort of running through various people, you know, Sandy Miller, and then I thought, mine and mine and that one. And, and it was like, you know in that moment in the wrong trousers where they point to the penguin and go, it's you. <laughs> it was just like that, you know. It's you. I thought, oh my goodness. Well, you know, I felt that when that was poured on me, well, apart from not wanting to wash my hair for a few days, um, it was like, it was like a level of refreshing and blessing that was released on my life. And, and I just feel, John, that I just want to pray for you because I just think that there's just a tremendous blessing of refreshing that God wants to release on you. And I don't have a bottle of oil, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> but I do feel that somehow what, I'm, what I am trying to gather together is, is the heart cry of all the people in the room. And it's like, you know, somehow if we could gather it all together and bottle it <laughs> and then pour it out. That's what I'm believing God to do in this moment. I'm doing it as a friend of John's. I'm probably one of the few people that could actually do this and get away with it. I'm not sure I'm going to get away with it. We're doing lunch later. I might not get away with it. And I, and I know I, I got a confirmation on this because, you know, when I was called aside earlier, I thought I was being fixed up with a microphone. But I was actually being given a challenge. If you feel it's right to pray for John, pray for him. And so I do feel it's right, John. We are going to pray. And... As Nick's there and Jamie's there, I want you just to lay hands on, on John with me. And I want all of you in this moment, you know, to be the oil in the bottle. I haven't got any oil to pour out on him. But all those prayers that you wanted to pray, all those things that you wanted to do, I just pray in this moment, John, that the Spirit of God will come and refresh you. Lord, as I have seen and said this morning, that I believe this church is playing an important role and could be salt in this earth. I want to thank you from the depth of my heart for all that you've done in order to make this church what it is. And as we just pour out this blessing on you, we just 
know that in a sense this blessing is going to flow down from the head right down to the lowest part of the garment. And every part of this church is going to benefit. As God blesses you and refreshes you, then every single part of this church is going to be blessed and refreshed. The Lord is saying, well done. But the Lord is also saying that there's more to release, John. More of your encouragement to release. Sometimes you feel that you can't do, but what you can do is you can facilitate. And, and, and I can see what you're facilitating, and I believe that days of incredible facilitating just lie ahead of you. And that God is going to do so much. Lord, right now, do what I cannot do. Lord, pour upon John the love and the prayers of this congregation and the gratitude of your church in this nation and of other parts of the world, from Sierra Leone to Peru and so many places. Just come this morning, Lord, and let this moment be a moment of refreshing and blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.